Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Wow, we're going to dive into this. Uh, After some brief introduction, catch us up, put everything in context, we're going to dive into Romans chapter 9 today and tackle a little bit anyway, at least from one angle, the doctrine of election. You excited? Yeah. Right. Everybody know what that is? Because I'm not going to define it today. If you don't know what it is, you're going to be lost all day today. No, I'm kidding. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. We have been in Romans for a number of weeks. This is part eight. Uh, we have uh, kind of slowed way down. I was... Uh, I, I kind of just took a different direction. I told you a few weeks ago we were going to do this. There's no sense in rushing through this just so we can say, well, we got through the Bible, uh, this, especially when we get to Romans, which is, uh, as, as I've uh, mentioned, certainly mentioned it in the introduction, this is the closest thing we find to a systematic theology in one book. Now, you've got to put everything together to get everything, but as far as Paul's letters go, this is the closest he comes to just defining Christianity. And there's so much that is fundamental to what we believe today that we really need to, to, to slow down and take it in. And it's amazing how many uh, turns he makes and directions he goes. Uh, but he's, uh, he's on this subject of Israel again for these three chapters. And uh, it's important what he says and what that says about us. But as you know, as you remember, I'm sure most of you, Paul hit the ground running in chapter 1, pointing out the sinful state of humanity and uh, boldly declaring that that's the rejo- that, that uh, the sinful state of humanity and the rotten the shape the world's in is a result of uh, a choice people have made to reject God, reject His ways, reject His wisdom, and then goes on to say that the Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles, perhaps more so because they have had the law of God spelled out to them. His point is that all have sinned and are therefore objects of God's wrath. And explains that the law given to the Jews was never meant to save them or anybody else. It only points out clearly man's need for salvation. It points out man's sinfulness, his shortcomings, and makes them aware uh, that they need help. They need saved. Uh, And that the key to being declared righteous was not keeping the law perfectly. That couldn't have been uh, the point because that was impossible. Uh, the key to being declared righteous always was believing God and trusting in his promise, his promises. And uh, exhibit A in chapter 4 is Abraham, the father of the faith. And he points out how Abraham wasn't declared righteous uh, by anything he did. Uh, He was declared righteous because he believed God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. Then he goes into even more detail about the sin nature He's explaining that it's not simply a matter of behavior. We are born with a nature that, uh, because of Adam's sin, and that death came to all of us because sin came to all of us through Adam. Adam, our first father, sinned, and we inherited that sin nature from him. It's who we are. But just as sin and death came into the world through the one man, Adam, righteousness and life come in and are available to the world through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's good news. Uh, How do we qualify? The same as always. We believe. We believe, and Christ's righteousness is accounted to us. So then the answer comes up. 
because Paul points out that it was nothing. It's not like we ever earned our way back. We didn't get this close just so God could reach across. He had to do all the work. Uh, Sin was abundant and sin remains abundant. But where sin abounds, guess what? Grace abounds all the more. So then people say, well, if that's the case, since we can't do anything to save ourselves, and since God's grace is so abundant in the face of abundant sin, why don't we just keep on sinning? In fact, why don't we sin all the more to make grace all the more abundant? Paul goes on to point out that's not how it's done. That's, That's not what this is about. It shouldn't be our hearts to sin all the more. God doesn't need our sin to make his grace abundant. He says, no, the whole point is when you are saved, when you receive God's grace, guess what you get? You get a new nature that enables you to then walk in a manner, walk in paths of righteousness that reflect the righteousness you've been clothed with because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So then the big question comes up in Romans 7 and 8. If that's the case, if I have indeed received a new nature when I got saved, when I was born again, when I received this righteousness, why do I still struggle with sin? No matter, it seems like the harder I make up my mind not to sin, the more I sin. And the more determined I am to do good, the more I fail at doing good. And then Paul points out, there's a big problem here, and that is our flesh is still our flesh. Uh, the, The redeeming work has all been done. God doesn't need to do anything else to save us, but as far as our receiving that full redemption, our spirits are saved. We are a new creature, but we are still in this flesh that has yet to be redeemed. There's something that we're crying out for, looking forward to. In fact, he goes on to say that the the whole world, the earth itself, is still laboring under a curse because of our sin, and that the earth and creation look to us as the first fruits of that righteousness, the first fruits of redemption. It looks at us and says, we are going to be redeemed like that someday. And in the same way, we look at Jesus and say, ultimately, even our bodies will be redeemed like his. We are not always going to be struggling with this flesh. And I'm not just talking about sickness and disease. I'm talking about sin itself. We are not always going to be trapped in a body that is fighting us. Meanwhile, where does the battle take place? Because our spirit is renewed, our, our, our salvation is spiritual, and our spirits are attracted and drawn to God. But this flesh still carries the stain of sin and still is attracted to carnal things. Where is the battle won? It's in the mind. You set your mind on the things of the spirit, and you will walk after the spirit. You set your mind on things of the flesh, you will walk after the flesh. So it's a matter of discipline. But uh, he, he's... Uh, we have to understand, and, and it's tricky, it's something we'll always, I think there'll always be this tension. We have to still know that our sonship is a done deal. We can determine how we're going to walk, but we have to avoid the trap of believing that, uh, that our works maintain our salvation any more than our works achieved our salvation. Got that? All right, he goes on, um, he ends chapter 8 with this gloriously, encouraging word uh, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. After he makes his case, look, all of our salvation was wrought through Jesus Christ on the cross, and if God did not hold his son back, how can you believe he would hold anything back from you? I am persuaded that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Oh, man. And then 
chapter 9, he dives right into this Israel question. It's almost like a sharp turn, but he starts by saying, I want you to know, even though some of the things I'm saying sound like I'm, I'm talking bad about Israel, I love Israel. In fact, he says in the early verses of chapter 9, I love Israel so much that if I could, I would almost... I would almost be willing to be accursed myself if they could be saved. If I could take their, if, they, if they're going to refuse Jesus and suffer the curse, I love them so much that I would go to hell for them if they could go to heaven in my place. It just doesn't work that way. And so then goes on to talk some more about God's plan for Israel. And this is so important, and it's important today because there are some people who believe. First Jew, uh, I'm sure it wasn't the first Jew I met, but it's the first Jew I ever talked with. Uh, about being Jewish as a girl I met in college and uh, I was trying to share the gospel with her and she says uh, well I'm Jewish and I said yeah but you know and I and I hard you know I was, I was still you know good grief 19 years old a lot of zeal very little knowledge and I'm trying to explain to her and I think I was right I just couldn't explain it very well that that no you know that this, this is you know Jesus is for everybody and the, the great thing about about Israel is they brought Jesus into the world and she said something I think that this clearly wasn't the first time she'd been confronted with the gospel she goes you know even if even if you're right uh the Jews are covered anyway I, I think she meant even from a Christian perspective and I'm like is that true I don't think that's true but I don't know how to tell her she's wrong uh because I wasn't uh, wasn't up on my Romans uh, let's, let's pick this up. I'm going to say some specific things about this, but I do think there are people who are laboring under this illusion that the, that the Jews kind of get a pass in this whole thing. And they absolutely don't. And Paul's going to make that extraordinarily clear here. But let's read uh, beginning in uh, verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. I'm in chapter 9, verse 6 of Romans. Uh, but it, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this... But when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it, it was said, to, the parentheses kind of make this hard to, to keep the sentences straight. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Wow. Now is there a lot to unpack in that passage? You better believe it. This is a passage that seems to argue strongly for election, but let's take it piece by piece. First of all, going back, and this is something we pointed out last week, when he said they are not all Israel who are of Israel, this is really the key to understanding so much of of the rest of the chapter because what he's saying is nobody was counted... It was faith that caused people to be declared righteous even in the Old Testament. And just because they were Israelites didn't mean they were all in faith. Their blood, their, their Abraham's DNA counted for nothing even in the Old Testament. It's not just a matter of there's this big shift. The important thing in, in, in the Old Testament was being Jewish versus being a Gentile. And now it's a matter of you've got to be a Christian. Paul's saying, no, no, no. It wasn't a matter of being a descendant of Abraham even in the Old Testament. They were children of the covenant. But as we often say, you know, God has, God has no grandchildren. Same thing was true in the, in, in the Old Covenant. They individually had to believe and act in faith. And this is what Paul's saying. There were, there were many, many Israelites by blood, by DNA, but they weren't all children of God. 
Because they weren't all in faith. They didn't believe the promise. And the ones who God considered the true Israel were the ones who believed the promise. And then he specifies the promise. What was the promise? Isaac. Isaac was the child of promise. Okay? If Abraham's DNA is what mattered, then Ishmael would have been just as good a candidate. But God made him understand, no, this isn't about... When I called you, I called you for my purposes. I didn't put something in you so that your DNA was now magical and would save humanity. No, I'm bringing a son through you, but it's going to be through my word, not your uh, contrivances here. You cannot make this happen on your own. I will visit you a year from now, and Sarah will bear you a son. So Isaac, the child of promise, is this is what we look to, the word, the promise. So, and then he says, and if that wasn't enough, then Rebekah, she gives birth to Jacob and Esau. Who was the firstborn? Esau. But what did God tell Rebekah? The older shall serve the younger. Then it talks about this, that it might stand a, Sorry, the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who called. Do you see what, just taking that word election, if you take that verse out of context, God's not talking about saving people by election here. He's nailing something down that we actually looked at when we were in the Old Testament. He is saying that you are not going to fulfill the purposes of God just because of the accident of birth order. It might mean something to you, but it, nothing is going to countermand or take precedence over the promise and the will of God. I am choosing Jacob to be uh, the next in line to fulfill this promise, and it's going to be Jacob's family that I'm going to bless. It's not about an accident of birth. It's about believing. And right off the bat, let me, let me back up here. Do you remember the covenant? that God made with Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and then repeated to Jacob. Here's the, here's the key verse. I will bless those who bless you. We're going to get to this God-hated Esau here in a second. If we go back to, uh, you don't have to turn there if you want. I'm just going to read one quick verse. In Genesis chapter 27, this is when, uh, you know, when God said that the older will serve the younger and Rebekah was partial to Jacob anyway. And you remember this, just a quick review uh, Jacob, anybody remember what the, the name Jacob means? Deceiver, right? Uh, he, 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 uh, he cheats, and didn't necessarily cheat, he just made a, a square deal with Esau. Esau comes out of the field, he's hungry, hey, give me some of that stew you're making. He said, I'll trade you, I'll trade you my stew for your birthright. Yeah, what do I care? I mean, if I'm going to die, I can't enjoy the birthright. Sana, sana, kolede, rana, sino, sana, sora, san, manana. The birthright's yours. Give me some stew. So he gives him some stew. He eats it. And then later, when it comes time for the blessing to be conferred, we're not going to go into a review about well, the, the difference here, but there's this big ceremony where Isaac confers the blessing on his sons, and he calls for Esau. And then Rebekah says, hey, Esau's out hunting. He's, pre- he's preparing your dad some food, and he's going to go in for the blessing here. And she wraps his arm in goat skins because Esau was that hairy. And uh, it, makes him, it makes him look, because Isaac was, was uh, blind at this point, so he had to go by sound and touch and smell and everything. And so she makes him as much like Esau as possible. And then when, she, when he goes in there, in Genesis chapter 32, he goes into the tent pretending to be Esau. And in verse 24, 
Oh, no, 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 no. no back, back up, back up. I'm not going to go there yet. Sorry, I'm way ahead of myself. When he goes in there, in... Uh, da, 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 da. Where's the blessing at? Where's the blessing at? Esau blessed... Uh, Isaac blesses Jacob. There we go. In verse yeah, 27, verse uh, 19. Jacob said to his father... Let me back up here to verse 18. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Verse 19, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now, that was a lie, wasn't it? Who was he really? Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Deceiver. And what's he doing? He's deceiving his father right there. Who are you? I'm Esau. Who are you? I'm Esau. Then, after he receives the blessing, he takes off. Because Esau has determined, I'm going to kill him. He stole my blessing. Uh, Rebekah tells him, go back to where my family is and uh, be safe. God will bring you back someday. So Jacob takes off. He has an encounter. He says on his journey to, to live with his uncle, uh, he has a, this is when he has the dream about you know, the ladder. You remember the stairway, that, uh, the angels descending and ascending? And uh, has this great uh, moment where he vows that if God will take care of him until he comes back, that the God of uh, Jacob and the God of Isaac, or the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, will also be his God. So then he goes and works for Laban for all those years. And then on his way back to the land that God had promised to his fathers, he has this divine encounter. And this is when we, in Genesis 32, do you remember the, when the angel of the Lord shows up and wrestles with him? You remember that? It's really kind of weird. But uh, in Genesis thirty-two twenty-four, it says, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. This was the angel, the angel of the Lord that said this. Uh, but he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? Remember, remember what happened when Isaac asked him that? Uh, Esau. Now he asked him, what is your name? And what's the answer? My name is Jacob. I'm a deceiver. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Prince of God, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Let me just say that we have to be honest with God about who we are before he can make us who he says we are. Before he, before he can make us who he promises to make us, we have to come to him fully open and honest about who we are. And this is the problem. When people come to Jesus, and, and it doesn't really go like this, but in a sense it does. It's, it's, it's on sub subconscious level. God says, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Why are you coming to me? Who am I? Well, I'm, I'm a decent guy who's just trying his best. And I just need a little help like everybody else. Who are you? I'm a, I'm a good God-fearing American, and the preacher says I need Jesus, so I guess I'll get Jesus too. Who are you? 
sinner. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. That's who I am. I'm lost. I've tried it. I've tried it a hundred times, Lord. At least I think I have. And I've blown it at every turn. Who am I? I'm a failure. I'm somebody who cannot do it. God says, yeah, but not anymore. You're not dead anymore. You're not a sinner anymore. You're not a loser anymore. You're righteous. You're my son. And you are more than a conqueror. But we have to start with who we are. Took Jacob 21 years to get there. So back to Esau. This is what happened with with Jacob. This process that finally brought him to his knees. And you remember shortly after this encounter... Goes back to this place where he'd made this promise. You remember? Made the promise that says, if you'll bring me back safely, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac will be my God. He goes back once he realizes God has preserved him, caused him even to to come face to face with the brother who swore to kill him all those years ago. He survives that. He's blessed. And then he builds this altar and names it what? God of Israel. I got to. Anyway, so back to Esau here in Romans chapter 9 when he says uh, that, the doctor, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works or of him who call, uh, but of him who calls. That's all that's saying about that part. When it's talking, it goes on and says some other things we've got to deal with. But here, when it's talking about the, the doctrine of election with regards to that, it's simply God saying, I never meant to just save Israel. All right? This is a matter of you are not going to be saved just because you are somebody's son. That's all that verse is about. But then when it goes on to say, it was said, the oldest shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That's written in Malachi. Malachi quotes that. Uh, we have to understand what that means. Because then what it looks like is, if you again, just reading it at face value without thinking about it, without reading it in context, here's what it looks like it says, and here's what a lot of people think it, thinks it says. God does what he wants, and it might seem arbitrary and random to us, but because he's God, we can't question it. If he wants to use Jacob, if he wants to love Jacob and hate Esau, we are nobody to question that. God does what he does. Uh, only by the counsel of his will, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't owe us an explanation. Well, and, and there's a sense in which that's true, and Paul's going to say the same thing here in a little bit, but we, again, in context, isn't that scary, though? Wow, the only thing that has anything to do with whether I'm going to to live or die, be saved or not, is just God deciding and it has nothing to do with belief, righteousness. He's already determined and chosen. That's not what election is, according to the Bible. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. That in itself is scary because God is love. How can he hate anybody? Why did he hate Esau? Well... (laughs) Back to this, remember this, I will, remember the part of the promise, the part that matters here is, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. When it says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, he's not talking about these two guys, he's talking about their offspring. Yeah, the other name for Esau was Edom, and if you read through the Old Testament, Edom was a thorn in Israel's side for centuries. They did everything they could to be a curse to Israel. Let me ask you this. Did they have to? Could Edom have blessed Israel? Absolutely. 
the offspring of Esau could have just chosen to be submissive and been a blessing to Israel. And what would have happened to them? God would have blessed them. What is love and hate from God's perspective? We talked about this not too long ago. It's not a matter of emotion. It's a, it's a matter of God setting his sights and purposes towards somebody's good or somebody's destruction. Now, he already promised, anybody who curses you, I'm going to curse. And so if I curse Israel, I put myself in a position to be hated by God, meaning he's going to set himself against me because he's already promised to bless Israel. That's what that means. He has hated Esau. Not, not from the birth. He hasn't looked inside the womb of Rebekah and say, I choose to hate Esau and love Jacob. Therefore, I'm going to bless Jacob. That's, not, it's, that's completely backwards. I'm going to choose Jacob to demonstrate that birth order means nothing to me, and I'm going to make a promise to him and bless him, but I'm also going to bless everybody that blesses him. Esau chooses to curse Israel. He's going to wind up being hated by God. All right? Now let's roll on. There's a lot I still want to get through today. Uh, In verse 15, and we're going to read this, in fact, let's read this, uh, start in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. And whom he wills he hardens. Uh, kind of a tricky passage. Let me back up to verse 15 there where it says, well, kind of where it ends, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. This isn't a statement that says God can be as random as he wants. But again, about God's eternal plan. The context here is what? It's God's love for the Gentile nations. What he's saying with this verse is, is no more or less than this. You are not going to limit me to just loving Israel. Okay? Their DNA doesn't make them love me anymore. Uh, and, and, and another major point of chapter 9 that's woven through all here is that, is that it's always God who initiates things. Okay? That's part of the plan of election. So when we read this, this whole passage up through verse 18, you know, says this to Pharaoh, I've raised you up so that I can show my power in you. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. The first response I have is verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? In other words, if, if what you're saying is, hey, doesn't matter what I do or what you do or anybody, God's still just going to love who he wants to love. He's still going to have compassion on certain people, and he's still going to harden people and, and hate people. And if that's going to happen without regard to me or you or anybody else, how can he have fault? How can he find fault with me? If he's just decided to curse me, I guess he's God. He can do that, but how, how can he point to me and find fault? And what, what are we doing here? We're accusing God of injustice. You might be God, and I might not be able to stop you, but that's not right. And the first response is, uh, and actually the one Paul gives. Let's go ahead and read it, starting in verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? 
Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? We'll read more here in just a second. But I want you to see what, that, what uh, Paul's talking about with this answer is uh, it really comes down to our worldview. Where do we start? When we come across a passage like this, I think our instinct and the place we often start when we ponder it is, does this make sense? Is this fair? Is this right from my perspective? And this is certainly the world we live in today. Well, if the Bible says that, I want nothing to do with it because that's just a mean, arbitrary, exclusive, um, narrow, intolerant God. If that's the way God is, I want... I, I can't remember this dude's name. He's some British actor, even a comedian, I think, and, but also a very outspoken atheist. And, and what if you find yourself face-to-face with God? What are you going to say? I, and I've heard, you know, Bertrand Russell, uh, his answer to that was, well, you didn't give me enough evidence. Uh, this guy says, uh, if, I find, if I have the opportunity to come face-to-face with God, and I don't believe he exists, but if I find out he exists and I come face-to-face with him, you know what I'm going to say to him? I'm going to say, how dare you? And then starts listing all the things that are wrong with the world. And oh man, I mean, I know it's mean. I know we should be above these things, but I kind of want to be in the room when he comes face to face with God. (laughs) And I'll look at him and say, go on, I dare you to say that. Won't even cross his mind, will it? Our first response might be to think, how is that fair? But we have to start from the perspective of God is God and God is right and God is just we have to understand we have to believe and have to know that even if we don't understand it it is right and it's not right just because he's God oh well I guess he gets to call it right even though deep down inside I know it's not right that's not it at all have you ever heard somebody say I'll bet you have maybe you've even said it and and you know and I get it. There's, there's something noble about it. You come across something in the Bible. Maybe you're having a discussion with somebody about a particular passage in the Bible, and the Bible condemns a certain thing. And it makes you uncomfortable, whether it's because it's something you've struggled with or something somebody close to you has struggled with, and you say, well, yeah, I wish the Bible didn't say that too. But it does. And, you, and, you, and, you, and we kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, I don't like that either. But I'm a Christian, so I have to go by it. And it's almost like we're saying, yeah, God's kind of old-fashioned and narrow about some stuff. And I don't like it any more than you do, but I'm at least going to submit to it. You know what I'm talking about? This, hey, I'll just be real honest. The number one issue that this, this mindset applies to today is, is, is the, uh, is the uh, argument about homosexuality. Because we all, most of us in here, have somebody we're very, very close to who struggles with that. And, of course, the church has been painted as hateful, homophobic. And the church has definitely made some missteps in that arena. No question about it. But the answer isn't to say, yeah, the Bible's pretty narrow and intolerant about that stuff, and I wish it wasn't. But it says what it says, so we have to, you know, like we're apologizing for God. What does the word say about the word? You know, in, in Psalm 19.7 it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It means the law is right, the word is right, 
And if we'll submit to it, it won't just be a matter of, it'll change us. It'll change us to see how good it is. And it's certainly not limited to that issue. I'm not going to get, please, 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 I'm going to get dragged into something political here. That's, I just wanted to give you a concrete example, and we might as well give the one that's, that's the most obvious one. But it's the same with everything. I had a friend, I, I think I may have shared this with you, uh, or may have come up in conversation. I'm a good friend, strong believer to this day, uh, doing great things for God. Uh, but he came to Christ, you know, in his uh, late teens. And uh, as he read the Bible, he said, man, I sure wish the Bible didn't say what it said about, you know, you know touch not a woman, or, or it's not good for a, woman to, a man to touch a woman. Uh, uh, you know, let's face it, every red-blooded American man would, would, would sure wish the Bible said different things about premarital sex, right? Being you know, recognizing that there are certain desires. Now, it's one thing to say, I have these desires, and I recognize that they're sinful, and therefore they're to be resisted, they're, they're to be, uh, uh, you know, we, we need to uh, strengthen ourselves, and make wise choices so that we don't give in to those temptations. But it's different than saying, wow, God made up this random rule. I wish he'd have made up a different random rule. And then as you grow in grace and you grow in his word, you see what a wonderful rule that is. How much it protects you from, how much it enriches marriage when you honor him with those commandments. You know I'm right, right? Uh, so the law converts us. It converts our soul. So our perspective, when we come across something like God's going to harden who he's going to harden, he's going to have compassion, who's going to have compassion, needs to be, all right, God is good. And if that's what he's going to do, that is a good thing, not a bad thing. It might seem random, arbitrary, and mean to me, but God is not random, arbitrary, and mean. This is good. Lord, convert me to understand and appreciate your ways. And then Paul goes on to explain it. All he's doing when he says, who are you to question, hey, the, 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 the clay can't question the potter, is he's just setting the parameters. Before we get into discussing this, just remember, he's God. Don't challenge him. You can ask questions. You can explore these things. But don't say, that's not right. You're starting from the wrong place. So then goes on to say, let's rush through this. I don't have to rush through it, but let's hurry. Uh, in, uh, in, verses, uh, yeah, in verse 20, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, does the potter... Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? He then offers some explanation uh, that points out how God patiently and for a long time waited and showed mercy on those he knew were never going to bow to him, including much of Israel, let alone Israel's enemies. And then he goes on to say what he really wants to say all along. And the rest of chapter 9 can be summed up like this. God's salvation was never meant just for Israel. Israel was meant to be the vessel through whom God offered salvation to the world. And long before their mission was fulfilled, the majority of Israel herself had turned from God. But there was always a remnant of true Israel. As we've said multiple times, Israel's view of itself is we are the favored of God. God made us so he, just so he could bless us for our sake. God's like, no, I brought Israel into existence through Abraham so that I could bring my Messiah to the world through you. I'm going to bless you along the way, and I'm going to bless those who bless you along the way. But it's all about believing in me. And from the get-go, most of Israel were not on board with that. There was always a remnant 
It seemed awfully small at some time, at at some times. You know, when the prophet cried out, I alone am left. And God says, no, there's uh, several thousand more that I've got hidden away and and, uh, preserved. But there's always a remnant of of, uh, true Israel. What's the upshot? Skip ahead to verse 30, and it says this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame." What's he saying there? That people who weren't even searching for God actually encountered God and embraced him in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that those who tried to pursue God through the law, trying to attain their righteousness through the law, they missed him when he showed up in the flesh. They not only missed him, but they were offended by him because he made it clear that their trying to be righteous through the law wasn't working. It is in that context that we move into Romans chapter 10. And stick with me. I want to do this today because I want this all fresh in your mind. I'm going to read a few more verses, but this isn't going to take as long as you might think. In Romans 10, beginning in verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. All right? Kind of repeating with that first part what he just closed with, that the ignorant of the law actually encountered God in the person of Christ, and those who were pursuing righteousness through the law missed him and rejected Christ, pointing out that Christ brings an end to the... Not not that Christ destroyed the law, but he fulfilled the law. And it says it's end of the law for righteousness, meaning you're not going to pursue righteousness through the law anymore. It's going to be through the person of Jesus Christ. And then it talks about don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, who will ascend into the abyss. When it comes to the Messiah uh, coming to the earth, we're not going to bring him down. We're not going to pull him up. This is all God's initiative. God is going to send Jesus in the fullness of time, and he did. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This is a verse we quote all the time. Altar calls, conversations about Christ, but you see it in its context how powerful it is. It's not about what you can do. You're not going to earn your salvation through the keeping of the law. And when it comes to the Messiah, you can't bring the Messiah into the world either. You can't bring him up from the dead. You can't pull him down from heaven. It's the word, the word of faith which which we preach. And it's right there in your mouth. 
What is that word? That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It ain't about being an Israelite or keeping the law. Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon his name, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You can hold your place there. I want to read a passage from Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13, this is Jesus speaking, and he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult, or constrained, or confined, would be a better word there, is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, that's, that always struck me, or year, for years did, as kind of a discouraging statement that Jesus made. I understand that the gate is narrow. What's he saying? There's only one way. What is that way? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. It's confined to Jesus. And this is a hard saying. This is another way of saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's a pretty narrow gate. How many ways are there to God? One way. Don't buy into this lie that, well, people are all, the, they're all searching for the same God. All paths, they might go different directions, but they all wind up at the top of the same mountain. And it's the same God, whether he goes by the name we call him or whether he goes by Allah or Buddha or whoever. That's not the truth. That's the wide path. And that path leads to destruction. Jesus says, it's a straight gate. It's a narrow, confined way that leads to life. And this is the point. like, oh, okay, that's great. As long as we know where it is, we can still make it. It's Jesus. We found him, right? But when he says, few find it, that's the discouraging part. What's he saying? That only a few will be saved? When we're talking about this remnant? I don't think that's what he's saying. Not, I think... This is the exciting part. Back to Romans. I need about five of these string things in my, uh, in my Bible. In Romans 10.14 then says, how, shall they, <clears throat> how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? I think what Jesus is saying in Matthew when he says, a few there are that find it, is that people don't, as a rule, stumble across the truth. They must be given an opportunity to respond to the truth of the gospel. This verse isn't saying that hardly anyone will be saved. It simply says they need to be shown. Jesus isn't talking about few there are who will go through the gate if you show them where it is. He says they're just not going to find the gate on their own. Stumbling through this life, reading philosophies, talking to people who don't know Jesus. They are Very few of these people are going to just on their own come to the conclusion that Jesus is the way. How can anybody? Well, we're seeing for instance in the Muslim world particularly there are stories that are coming out all the time. These are some of the most exciting stories you'll hear and many of you have probably heard them where people are starting to question 
uh, you know, we have, we have a very narrow and incorrect view of the, of the world of Islam. Their, their, their religion is wrong. Uh, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's, oh, if we just understood them, we'd believe the same thing. No, it's just that the, the vast majority of Muslims don't know their scriptures. They're cultural Muslims, just like you could say about America back when 99% of Americans claimed to be Christians. Most of us didn't know our Bibles either. Most of Americans didn't, okay? So I'm not picking on Islam for this. Uh, but there's an awful lot they don't know about Islam. And when they start seeing the, especially in this day and age, when the information is out there, they're able to access a lot of the same stuff on the internet that you and I uh, can. And we see, they're seeing all the horrors done in the name of Islam. And so they start to question, is, is, is the thing that I was raised to believe, is it true? And there have been dozens, hundreds, I'm sure, probably thousands, and probably many more that we haven't heard of, stories about people who will pray. I want to know the truth. God, show me who you really are. And Jesus himself encounters them in a dream. It really happens. All I'm saying, and I think what Jesus is saying, is that's not the rule. Most people are not just going to stumble into Jesus like that. What do they need? They need a preacher. They're not, how do they get saved? By calling on the name of the Lord. How are they going to call on him if they never heard of him? And how are they ever going to hear of him if we don't tell him? What do we do at Living Word? We live the gospel and we preach the gospel. Stand up with me. Praise and worship team, come on, up, come on up here. There's a lot of good news in this stuff we read today, folks. First piece of good news is this. After all the law, after all the stuff, all the, all the, uh, the burden that the Jews carried, there's this sad moment where they missed the very purpose that they were in the world for, which was to bring the Messiah. And they stumbled over that very same Messiah, the rock of truth. And if that weren't bad enough to rub salt into the wound, what happens? The Gentile world embraces him. As we're going to read on in chapter 10, God takes advantage of this momentum and, and drives the Jews to jealousy. You're seeing how close the Gentiles are becoming to me because of Jesus. And now you want, they were supposed to want what you had, now you want what they have. I love the way Peterson puts it in the message. You walked out the door, and, but you left the door open. And the Gentiles came in through that door. The good news is the door's still open and you can get back in. What's the good news for us? That we don't have to jump through the hoops of the law. There's no profit there. Where does the law lead? Leads to death. Legalism kills. It's isn't about that. It's about Jesus. Well, what is it then? It's the word we spoke to you. What is that word of faith? That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that personally? If you've never made that personal confession of faith, I'm going to invite you to do it right now. You've heard the gospel this morning. Here's your chance to respond. You don't need to stumble around until you find Jesus. I've introduced him. I've shown him to you today. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.